Welcome to the Cato Institute. Good morning. Uh, I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato, and very honored to serve as the moderator of today's event. Uh, before I found myself entangled in the, in the web that is financial regulation, I actually began my career studying housing markets. Uh, of course, we've painfully learned that housing uh, and financial stability are all too closely uh, tied. Zoning, however, doesn't just impact financial stability, uh, impacts almost all social and economic activity. Uh, despite living in the age of the internet, place very much still matters. For a long time, the first book that any economist turned to when trying to understand land use and housing was William Fishel's 1985 book, The Economics uh, of Zoning Laws. Uh, to tell you the power of even this book, only about six months ago I recommended it to somebody uh, as a top of their reading list who was trying to understand housing markets. Uh, since writing that book, Professor Fischel has published a number of other books uh, in the areas of housing, local government finance, education, as well as countless uh, academic articles. During that time, interestingly, he has also spent about a decade sitting on the zoning board in Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, the book we were discussed today, Zoning Rules, is in part an update to that now classic 1985 book, but it's also in part the aggregation of an impressive career's work. Uh, there have been few scholars, in my opinion, who have shaped our understanding of land use regulation as much as Bill Fisher. One of, his, one of the fathers of urban economics, Wallace Oates, describes the zoning rules as the, quote, definitive, definitive work on the economics of land use regulation. I could not agree more. We are honored to have its author, uh, Dartmouth College economics professor, Professor William Fischel, with us today to discuss his latest book. We are also honored to have two distinguished commentators to discuss the book, after which we will welcome questions from the audience. Our first commentator will be Matt Iglesias at Fox Media. While Matt is perhaps best known for his writings at Fox, Slate, Month Atlantic, and others, he's also the author of The Rent is Too Damn High, What to Do About It, and Why It Matters More Than You Think, uh, which I believe will be particularly relevant for today's discussion. Uh, our final commentator will be Robert Deeds, Vice President of Tax and Market Analysis for the National Association of Home Builders. Prior to joining NEHB, he worked as an economist on the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation, so I suspect he has some very strong views on residential taxation. Um, he holds a PhD in economics from Ohio State University. Let me also point out that our latest issue of Regulation Magazine, the lead piece is Back to Comprehensive Zoning, can planning defeat NIMBYism and obstructionist zoning, and can cities start growing again, uh, which is free, as you will find outside and around. So with that, I want to welcome our audience, welcome our panelists, and turn the podium over to Bill. Okay. Um, uh, as um, Mark generously uh, noted, I've, I've uh, written a lot about this subject, and uh, I started uh, several years ago uh, thinking I would just uh, update the uh, Economics of Zoning Laws, a book that I published 30 years ago, and uh, uh, turned out that uh, the update required much more uh, research and writing than I anticipated. Uh, that's almost axiomatically true of all authors, by the way. Uh, so it took much longer to do this. Uh, and, and I want to uh, uh, talk today uh, about what makes the current book different from the former book. Uh, the former book's idea, which is still in the current book, is that we should think of zoning as something, not something that bureaucrats or even planners uh, are, are all over, on top of, are really determining, but rather about uh, uh, homeowners. Uh, because home ownership is, uh, while it is a wonderful thing, I've been a homeowner for 40 years, uh, um, 
it, it also is a, uh, a taxing thing, taxing to your nerves. You've got all of your assets, or a lot of your assets, in one, uh, one industry, one firm in one industry, uh, a financial advisor who would tell you to do that, well, you, you should shove out the door. Uh, you're supposed to diversify. But homes are not diversified. They are all in one location. And homeowners are acutely aware of the fact that what local governments do, what local school districts do, has a big impact on the value of that very big asset uh, that they cannot diversify uh, or otherwise uh, insure. And so they become very active uh, in, in local land use regulation, because that is the thing that most affects the, uh, uh, <coughs> how things work. Uh, this this uh, uh, idea inspired me to come up with my first, uh, let me get back to over here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> my first, my, I, <clears throat> the, the, the uh, historical approach that I want to use in the book, that's, that's exactly what I could use. Um, um, thanks. The um, origins of zoning were uh, the first zoning law, the comprehensive zoning law in America was uh, 99 years ago. Uh, New York City adopted a zoning law. And before you blame New York City, uh, virtually every large city uh, jumped on that bandwagon very, very quickly. Uh, why did they do that? Uh, I think they did it because they, uh, um, uh, because of the uh, because of Henry Ford, uh, Henry Ford invented the Model T. Came uh, didn't invent the automobile, but he invented a car that was very cheap. And as soon as it came out, its price went down, and lots of people started buying automobiles. And they started buying automobiles for two other purposes, other than just moving themselves. One was to move them to uh, uh, convert them into trucks to uh, move uh, a freight around, and the other was to turn them, turn them into uh, little uh, buses called jitney buses uh, to uh, move things around. And these liberated businesses, industry, and apartments from the central city where people had to walk or be very close to uh, the, the railroad or the uh, uh, shipyard, and allowed businesses and apartment dwellers to go out into the suburbs where the single-family homeowners were gradually uh, were, were, were starting to accumulate. They didn't like having all those businesses move in next to them. And so they, uh, quite uncharacteristic of American uh, 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 population, uh, decided to uh, throw out a couple thousand years of property law and adopt zoning, uh, prior regulation of what you could do instead of a nuisance law, which is ex post regulation of what you've already done, get a court to, uh, to make them stop. That's ancient English law. They adopted this brand new concept, borrowed it from Germany, uh, which wasn't too old there, uh, and, and applied it. What, so, what, <coughs> what they were interested in doing um, was, I'm just going to wave it. Can I step away from the mic? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Just be loud. Okay. Uh, this is uh, the, the urban section of Hanover, New Hampshire. You may not think there is an urban section of Hanover, New Hampshire. It's a population <laughs> of 10,000. This is, uh, but this is the zoning map, and this is the uh, zoning map of the uh, 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 urban area. The, the mid-green part is, appropriately enough, Dartmouth College, the institutional zone, the I zone. But around it are various uh, colored areas that indicate 
what kind of residence you can have, uh, uh, what kind of uh, office and laboratory where you can put uh, downtown businesses and things like this. And the idea is you can do those things there but not elsewhere. This may enable the homeowners, the people who live, say, down in here, that's pretty much where I live, um, uh, safe, feel safe from the inroads of apartment dwellers or, or businesses which might create those minor irritants that lower your property value that might, uh, uh, that, uh, <clears throat> that don't really rise to the level of nuisance. So concern about home values was there at the beginning, I maintain. This is a story I've been telling for about 10 years uh, in a book called, the or an article called The Economic History of Zoning. And, and, and it's, it's generally well accepted. I think people sort of look at this and say, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. Uh, it's actually consistent with what they were talking about at the time. Home builders were in favor of zoning. They actually lobbied uh, state, state governments to adopt zoning because they were worried they couldn't sell their product if industry or giant apartment houses or, or, or things like that could invade neighborhoods. So they thought having zoning was a good idea. They did add that we need to control zoning a bit. We need to be able to uh, uh, control the, uh, zoning boards and so forth. Uh, and to some extent, for the next uh, 50 years after 19, uh, uh, <clears throat> 50 or 60 years after zoning was first adopted, they did. So what typically happens uh, in that period was a developer who wanted to lay out attractive homes, say, like the ones up here designated SR1, uh, up, up East Wheelock Street, if you're familiar with Hanover, at least it's going up the hill there. Uh, they laid these out in the 1950s and 1960s. And uh, Hanover had zoning then. But the uh, developer goes to the, uh, not to the zoning board, uh, goes to the planning board and says, we'd like to do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and the planning board says, no, maybe you want to do this, you want to curve the tree or something like that. And they negotiate, basically, and come up with some plan. And it gets approved and it gets executed. It's government to, to, uh, to uh, home builder uh, or, or other developer. This model, which I call the good housekeeping mode of zoning, I won't call it sorry, theory, the, the good housekeeping approach to zoning, Every, a place for everything but everything in its place, uh, dominated American land use for a good 60 years. Then the 1970s happened, and everything went out the door. Now, lots of things happened in the 1970s, and so I've been trying to parse out what it was in the 1970s that particularly made zoning vastly more restrictive. And I'll give you an example of the vast restriction from, again, my own hometown. This is the uh, southwest quadrant of Hanover. The rest of Hanover is, uh, uh, is, is mostly forested lands, some of it former, far, former uh, uh, farmland. And um, it was zoned rural residential. About 10 years ago, a ballot measure appeared to, to downzone, make more restrictive the, resident, the rural residential uh, area from three-acre minimum lot size, which is pretty big, to 10-acre minimum lot size, which is no, don't build anything there. And basically, no subdivision has happened in the rural section in, 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 in Hanover in the last 10 years. Quite predictably, this has raised the demand for, for housing inside 
And the planning board, realizing that they'd uh, done this uh, and, and thinking in terms of smart growth, proposed to the voters an increase in the intensity of land use in the downtown area, basically the entrance to, to, to town. There's some scattered uh, little apartments, kind of tired looking, and, and basically approached, uh, uh, proposed a, an urban village looking thing, apartments and, and little neighborhood shops and things like this. Uh, I was part of that. I advocated it. I thought it was a great idea. Uh, I went public with it. I wasn't on the planning board, but, but uh, 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 wrote letters and things like this. It got defeated two to one <laughs> at the town vote. The voters uh, don't have to be time consistent. They, they can say, let's downzone there and upzone here later. No, no, let, maybe we don't want upzone. Uh, maybe it's inconvenient for us. We, it might, might affect the value of our houses. Indeed, the downzoning in downtown, out of town, I think it has vastly increased the value of my house. Uh, uh, my neighbors are, are expanding. My, my neighborhood looks like a construction zone. Uh, all those people who would have lived in the outer part of town are now buying little houses in town and, and, and upgrading them. Um, I think this is, so, so, so I think the, so w what happened in the 1970s? Well, lots of things happened in the 1970s. There, there was the interstate highway system that kind of opened up the suburbs a lot. Uh, central city problems got more, more problematic uh, uh, and, uh, and, and a whole bunch of, you know, cultural norms changed. We were less, the, that, that deal between the government and the, and the developers started looking fishy to, to a lot of people. What I think really happened though, was inflation drove up the value of single-family houses to a degree that for most homeowners, a house which had formerly been a nice place to live and a good place to avoid having the rent man come and collect money to, from you, uh, homeowners started to look at their house as a growth stock, something who's not who's neighborhood was to be protected by isolating it from business, but to promote it, anything that would raise its value. And so all sorts of arguments that would have been dismissed in the 1950s and 60s and the 1970s, 80s, and 90s start to be taken seriously because it looks like those things will add to the value of my homes. So, so environmentalism, which starts off as something as a uh, movement about air pollution and preserving wilderness, gets repurposed to, uh, to uh, the, the, the suburban areas and the, and the, and, and the city areas to uh, uh, form an argument for preventing development, that is, preventing the competition. It is simply uh, cartelizing or monopolizing the, the housing market. This is not by a monopolist consciously thinking. I always have, this is a bit of a hard sell. It's not like they met together in a room and said, let's, let's do this. It's just that the value of their big asset comes up and they find common cause with one another and decide that they really need to, uh, uh, really need to, to uh, uh, cut back on that development out there in rural Hanover. Well, what happens in Hanover, it stays in Hanover. It's not a big deal, but this is happening all over the place. This is a general phenomenon that, that all uh, uh, planners and home builders uh, have to deal with. This is actually an issue in, in many ways, uh, planners, uh, city planners and, and, and the home building industry and, and uh, are, are often sort of, you think of them as being at odds in certain areas, but, but a lot of the, 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 the uh, issues here, uh, they actually have some common cause, I think, insofar as the, uh, 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 the 
pl the plans that are made, uh, emblematic of this description of, of the, the infill development that they wanted. The planners and the home builders all wanted to do this. It was a great idea. It was the voters uh, acting as, as anonymous voters and acting, uh, almost all of them homeowners sh uh, show up at these things, uh, uh, who, who uh, made, made realization of this rationalization of the, uh, of the housing market and, and, and the commuting market and so forth uh, made, it much more, uh, made it much more difficult. Um, so, the, so that's the novelty of the book, which is where I'm trying to explain something that happened in the 1970s and is still with us. You might say, I want to anticipate one argument, and then I'll stop and let, let people, other people talk. Uh, uh, it, it, you've noticed we haven't had inflation for a while, right? Uh, uh, actually, the Fed is worried about deflation, um, properly so. Um, so why, do, why hasn't this just gone away? One of the things you have to do if you are going to create a cartel or a monopoly in something, and, and when I was on the zoning board, I actually heard people worry about this, is, well, we can downzone this now to 10-acre minimum lot size, uh, or, or, but then again, sometime in the future, we can upzone it so, so we could have more development. And so we've developed a host of devices not zoning devices, but supplementary to zoning devices, to make sure that's really difficult to change back. Once you've adopted these large lot open space, you put it in conservation easements, which the Internal Revenue Service, bless, them, bless their hearts, tell, tells the donors, because they're getting a tax break, they must be perpetual. Uh, do you know what perpetual means? Uh, actually, a couple of donors apparently didn't know. It means forever. <laughs> and somebody's got to be on that case for a very, very long time. Uh, and so we have these conservation easements dotting the town that are not, are not on the zoning map, but, but even if they wanted to upzone, to rezone it, they would have this, this, uh, 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 this, other di this difficulty in, in repurposing it. So I think zoning has, has created some serious problems here. Uh, it is a local government thing. I'm a local government guy, and in a sense, I'm embarrassed by, by this. Uh, one of the things that, is, that I'll just mention as just as a factoid is if, if we are looking at uh, the United States, <coughs> this is a map of school districts. My previous book was about school districts. It was, uh, I, I think five people have read that book. So, uh, uh, so I'm not, uh, you know, uh, uh, and on the other hand, I could not have written the current book if I hadn't read, read, you know, written that one. So, so I'm piggybacking here. The, the, in the northeastern United States and on the west coast, we have a housing price differential that is murdering the economy. It's really bad for the economy. Silicon Valley can't get people to move from, from Kansas to, to California. Uh, uh, people in, uh, financial people in New York uh, can't get people to move from Chicago to New York. The, the, the rent is just too high, and the housing prices are just too high to, to give a plug to the map. Um, um, and, um, and my explanation for that is the Northeast has these tiny local governments, the kind of government I love, but does the kind of things that I don't like, which is down zone and keep it because they're worried about their home values. Out on the West Coast, they have larger governments, but they've got that voter initiative. They vote on everything. Land use initiatives just kill the, uh, uh, the projects that they get going. The difference is the South. The South is really pro-development. 
The South has low housing prices. They've had lots of immigration. They built like crazy, just like Chicago and San Francisco used to before zoning. The reason is that in the South, they don't have the initiative. The, the land use initiative is very, very uh, 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 rarely used for, uh, uh, for land for in, in local government. And their local governments are large. Now, large sounds like it could be a monopoly, but it's actually quite the opposite. In large governments, developers and county officials sort of get together, and uh, the voters are kind of uh, uh, in the back seat. They are not running roughshod. I do not think so Southern zoning, if there's anything wrong with it. It's just that it doesn't get second-guessed by the local homeowners, and so they're able to get their acts together. Uh, I'll leave you with that uh, possible insight and let, let some other people talk. Thank you. Uh, Matt, it's all yours. So it's great to be here, and this is a fantastic book. And I, I should really say, you know, I, I recommend it to anyone who's, who's interested in zoning and land use. Uh, I've learned an enormous amount from it. The account of the sort of historical origins of this process is fascinating to me, and I think incredibly important. And the core point that we're looking at a bottom-up phenomenon rather than a top-down one, I think is maybe familiar at this point to specialists, but I think not obvious to, to a lot of people, and is really central to understanding what's going on here. Also, a, a personal interest of, of mine in this subject that comes through very strongly in the book and that is important for people to understand is the national scale consequences of these kind of problems. Um, you know, you look at the town of Hanover, you can see some stuff going on, and it maybe looks, you know, not so great that the residents of this small town are acting in an exclusionary manner. On the other hand, you might say, you know, so what, right? There's a lot of towns in America. If some of them want to be like this and some of them want to be like that, that's kind of, that's fine. Um, the problem arises, though, that we really do see in our biggest economic centers this exact same story playing out and playing out in a very big way and in a way that I think we can see is tangibly damaging the economy. And it does so in three ways. One is that construction itself is a valuable economic activity. There's a reasonably well-paying jobs, particularly in a world with a lot of outsourcing, a lot of manufacturing going to the third world. You obviously, you're not gonna build a house in San Francisco in China, you're gonna build it in California. Um, and it's a shame to sort of limit people's opportunity to get that kind of work. Um, Second, it hurts the people who are living in the high-cost areas. I mean, it's true that home ownership is, is a kind of investment, but it's also a place to live. Uh, and if you've ever you know, spoken to your friends living in New York, your friends living in California, they're often living in quite small dwellings compared to people who, who live in the Sun Belt. Um, it would be nice if everyone in America could have a bigger house than their current house, or so it seems to me. Um, and then it hurts us because it really hurts us on labor mobility. Traditionally, a huge strength of the American economy has been the ability of people to pick up and move to where opportunity lies. And we're really seeing that erode. Uh, Professor Fischel talked about the difficulty that high-tech firms have in sort of recruiting people to come work for them because the costs are so high. But you also see the sort of secondary consequences of that, right? I mean, most people, even in the Silicon Valley area, don't work in the computer industry. Most people in New York don't work in the financial industry. They work providing local services to other people. 
But generally speaking, you know, if you're going to open a restaurant, if you're going to run a, a hair salon, if you're going to have a furniture store, it would be good to be located near these sort of dynamic, high-growth exporting industries. But when you make it very, very difficult for the population to expand, you make it really hard for people with skills, with entrepreneurial ideas that relate to this kind of service economy to go where the opportunities really are for them. And so you see this tremendous trend of population migration in the United States to Sunbelt areas, which is fine. I mean, I think it, it's possible some people, particularly uh, coastal liberal type people, get excessively down on the sort of lifestyle in Texas and Tennessee and in places like that. Um, but the fact of the matter is, those are not the most prosperous regions of the United States. Those are not the places where you would think people would want to go to find opportunity for themselves. But particularly for working class people, the real cost of living difference is big enough that it makes sense to go places where you will get paid less money simply because you can afford more houses. And that's individually rational, but collectively it's a huge mistake for the United States to be trying to allocate people to where land is cheap rather than to be allocating people to where labor is valuable. We're not really going to become wealthier as a country with this current strategy of lock people out of the valuable areas, shift them to the cheap ones. We need to be trying to do the opposite, encouraging people to go you know, where their work is going to be sort of most useful. Um, so I think you know it's a crucial issue. It's a very important book. I'm really glad to see Cato getting more interested in this issue because I do think that one issue, I'm a believer, I think more so than most economists are, in the sort of importance of ideology as such, as a driver of public affairs and public life. And I do think that one issue we see here is that the kinds of people in political movements who are most invested in the concept of free markets and dynamism have simply not put this on the agenda in a very serious way as a priority of theirs. So I, I think it's great to have this event here. I think part of the ultimate solution is going to be the people who are emotionally and intellectually attuned to the value of free enterprise and letting people do things, talking about the fact that land use in the United States is a, is a big deal and a very heavily regulated industry. Um, and that also brings me to, I guess, where I would be a, a little critical of the model presented in the book, which is that I think it almost undersells how slightly mysterious some of the land use behavior that you see in the United States is. You certainly have cases of this sort of individually rational, but perhaps collectively dysfunctional effort to, to create high housing prices and to exclude people. Uh, but you also see things that are, are in some ways far odder than that. Uh, we have here in the District of Columbia a federal law that says you can't have an office building of over 110 feet. Um, it's 130 feet, I think, on Pennsylvania Avenue. And uh, the Republican House member who chaired the relevant committee, somehow this got on his agenda one day. And he thought, you know, maybe I should Maybe we should change this. That's like a weird rule. It was a fire safety regulation from the 1890s. And you know we have sprinklers now. Um, and uh, Howard Mendelson, the chairman of the city council, he, he got word of this. And he said, oh, no, we should have a resolution asking Congress to not let us change our zoning to allow for taller office buildings downtown. And it passed the council unanimously. And it's, it was weird. It was a weird rule, right? It would not negatively impact the value of 
owner-occupied housing in the city to have more jobs located downtown. Uh, it would grow the tax base of the city. It would let us have you know, more services or, or lower tax rates or something like that. It would possibly increase some automobile congestion, but part of the value of owner-occupied housing in central city areas is proximity to jobs and commercial centers. We would have a bigger one there. But they were against it you know, anyway. Um, and you see, oftentimes, particularly in central cities, as the sort of urban crisis of the 70s has waned, you see this um, almost the opposite of the dynamic that's being presented there. You see uh, the council member who represents the Mission District in San Francisco has called for a moratorium on new development in the Mission. And he doesn't say this is because he doesn't want undesirables moving in. He says it's because he doesn't want affluent newcomers moving in. Um, and the claim, at least he's being made, is that it will preserve housing affordability to keep new developers from coming in. Uh, but whether he's right about that, I mean, he seems wrong about that. But whether it's analytically correct or not, what's definitely not happening there is a desire to keep sort of, you know, poor people out. It's not a desire to keep nasty factories out. It's a desire to keep nice new condos full of rich people who will shop in the local businesses out. Uh, and you see something similar in, in New York, where the new mayor's big idea is that you need to make it be the case that new developments are going to have to include more subsidized housing for low-income people. Um, you know, you might think that's a good idea. You might think it's a bad idea. But it's again, it's the reverse of this exclusionary concept. Um, it's a desire to uh, you know, say that, that new incoming development is, is a bad thing. You also see a lot of misperception. Uh, I work at a, a site that's primarily about politics and, and pop culture, but our company also publishes a, a site called Curbed, which is about uh, real estate and home design and things like that. It's not a, a policy-focused site, but they cover different cities around America. And you can see from their coverage that the perception in some of the most heavily sort of uh, zoning regulated and development averse cities is that a building boom is happening. People who live in New York, people who live in San Francisco, have convinced themselves that they're in the midst of an insane development boom. And it's, it's simply not true. I, I think that the cranes you know, that are associated with high-rise housing are sort of, you can see them from further away than building single-family homes in the suburbs of San Antonio. Uh, but it's demonstrably true, if you look up statistics, that home building is happening in the Sun Belt. That's where people are moving, uh, not in big northeastern cities or west coast ones. Um, so I think that there's a certain perverse element that's taking place in, in some places in the country that requires some kind of explanation that is a little bit different from this economic one that we're seeing here. You can maybe rationalize it as a homeowner's cartel that is combined with some kind of false consciousness so that people force themselves to argue that they're doing the opposite of what it is that they're really doing. But that seems a little, a little loopy to me. Um, and so I would put in terms of solutions, a little bit less emphasis on the tax subsidy for homeownership, 
which, I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to reforming that. I think most economists think it's not a very well-designed sort of program. Uh, but I would look more at, for one thing, just the realm of ideas, but also at some of our approaches to urban management. I think the fact that we don't appropriately price road access and parking, things like that, have served to make people more opposed to any kind of change or growth in their community than they really ought to be. That when you talk about things like the proposed infill development in, in Hanover, um, it strikes, I don't know the, the full details, but it strikes me as a little bit implausible that actually building a, a nice urban town center in the middle of a college town would have depressed property values for people living on, on the outside. Uh, what I do think is very plausible is that it would have made it harder to find parking spaces. Um, and people, if you've ever been on a neighborhood listserv anywhere, are like fanatically obsessed with that issue. Um, it's relatively easy to imagine designing a solution where you have to pay for the street parking in a demand responsive way that you can say, well, okay, on the one hand, parking might be more expensive. On the other hand, there's gonna be all this new revenue for the town. We could do something we want with that. We could cut our property taxes. You know, we could, we could make life good. Uh, so I, I would put, I guess, in some more emphasis on ideas and on the need for newer, better ideas about how to manage urban growth in a way that meets everybody's interests, because I think that you know it can be done, and I think that people are not just upset about the market value of their homes, which in some ways you could obtain by allowing for more redevelopment, uh, but simply in a in a actual aversion to having more people around. And we need to find better ways to manage the existence of more crowding in urban spaces, because that kind of crowding is itself, in many ways, an economically valuable thing. And there's a lot of potential benefits to unlocking it. Matt? All right. Good morning. Um, I'm going to actually jump around a little bit from some of my prepared comments because I actually agree with a, a lot of what the, the previous speakers uh, mentioned. One, I would just say, you know, I enjoyed the book greatly. I, I highly recommend it. I think it's an important topic. Um, it's an important topic because it does affect housing affordability, and that's something we're sort of interested at the home builders. And I guess I should add, I'm, I'm speaking here on my own behalf. Uh, NHB does actually represent builders of single-family, multifamily, rental, owner-occupied. So we, we we do the full the full match. And one of the questions is, what do regulatory burdens do to housing costs? And so we we surveyed single-family builders. It's a hard thing to quantify, but about a quarter of a home's cost is due to various regulatory uh, concerns. And about two-thirds of that 25% is due to local regulatory burdens, which would include land use regulations. So it's, it's clearly something that can affect housing affordability. Um, again, the, the book is great. It's, it's witty. It's engaging. Um, I think the, the literature review and the citation list alone makes it a, a really valuable resource list for grad students, undergrads, Hill analysts. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's excellent. So let's see. I won't uh, repeat chapter five, but if, if you haven't had a chance to read it, uh, his, his history of economic zoning, real, really good, uh, you know, in terms of raising the cost of housing. Um, there's no doubt that it hurts population mobility and then harms income convergence and wealth convergence, since the home really is, uh, for most middle class families, the most important source of wealth. And just the story about streetcars uh, providing an incentive for clustering and then trucks and buses 
how relaxed that is excellent. And then leading to homeowners using zoning uh, in connection with highway development and the environmental movement to just NIMBYism in, in general. I would make a, a few suggestions in terms of future additions or at least research that could add to this book. One is inclusionary zoning. It's, it's not discussed a whole lot in the book. There's a little mention of it in chapter seven. That's, that's kind of a, a popular trend that got started in, in Fairfax County. Um, our take on it's generally been that it's counterproductive, that uh, inclusionary zoning is where you require a developer of an apartment building to include below market rates that's essentially subsidized by the developer as part of building market rate housing. And so effectively you're raising the cost of building housing and therefore constricting the supply and basically producing the opposite outcome. Uh, but some history and, and the economics of inclusionary zoning I think is sort of the next step. And the other thing is sort of now within the last few months, maybe the, the additional player on the stage of land use regulations was the federal government. Uh, we've had the uh, HUD regulations in terms of uh, furthering fair housing, which would look at how HUD funds are used and community development takes place with respect to income distributions across neighborhoods, as well as the Supreme Court case uh, dealing with the low-income housing tax credit, which is a really important and useful way to provide affordable housing. Uh, but this uh, particular court case makes it a little more complicated for developers to judge if they build low-income housing in low-income neighborhoods is that discriminatory? Even if they don't have an intent, but by outcome does it produce segregation, um, that's, a, that's a bit confusing for developers. So I, I think those are some interesting topics to look at uh, going forward in this area. A few, uh, a few quibbles, I'm, I'm kind of a, a tax guy, so there's kind of a heavy preponderance of, of tax issues here. But one, a couple times in the book, we make this contrast, and you see it often, which is the, the homeownership decision versus rent invest in stocks and bonds, and you'll see a listing of the homeownership benefits, mortgage interest deduction, and so forth. I think in any kind of discussion like that, it is important just as a matter of symmetry to mention that there are plenty of financial investment tax incentives as well, 401ks, the 15% rate on capital gains and dividends, IRAs. In fact, if you add all those up, you do get a, a pile of tax expenditures that's greater than the, the housing ones. The, uh, the book does make the argument that the mortgage interest deduction uh, enhances suburbanization and therefore leads to an increase in zoning. I'm, I'm not entirely sold in that. I admit I'm, I'm in the minority among economists in that. But you know, the mortgage interest deduction can be used for a condo in the central city, for a townhouse in the inner suburb, as well as a single-family home. Uh, the connection to land seems a little unclear to me. Um, a small point, uh, this is often said, but the idea that few homeowners actually claim the mortgage interest deduction because they don't itemize. Actually, if you look at the data, about 70% of homeowners with a mortgage in a given year do claim the, the mortgage interest deduction. It's, it's the primary way that uh, people become itemizers. Uh, so it's that, that's, uh, that tax issue is really not in play. Imputed rent is kind of brought up in the discussion of property tax and impact fees. There's a lot to, to discuss there, but the notion here being that the imputed rent is the true tax expenditure measure of the subsidy of housing and therefore leads to this increase in wealth that's held by homeowners and then furthers a demand for, for zoning rules. I'm a little skeptical about sort of the, the philosophy behind tax expenditures and generally that the idea that if uh, the government doesn't tax something, uh, it's spending money. I, you know, it doesn't even have to collect it first before it spends it. But the imputed rent one is even more confusing in the sense that here you're paying rent to yourself as a homeowner. It's an important thing to include in GDP because otherwise if the homeownership rate went up, GDP would go down. Uh, but, you know, it, it's something you pay to yourself, so how do you tax it? 
And actually, I would make the argument that within this context, the property tax itself, even though it's not paid to the IRS, acts like a tax on imputed rent. So it almost already exists, so within that, that policy discussion. The last thing is in terms of uh, just uh, quibbles. You know, the, the, one of the themes of the book is that, as you mentioned, the, the rise in inflation increased the wealth held by homeowners and, and therefore increased the demand for, for zoning rules to protect their asset. It's not really clear to me whether it's, it's the rise in the actual dollar value of equity or homeownership itself that's the, the driving factor there. And I think that's an area where research could matter. You know, if, if I have a $500,000 house, if I own it free and clear, or I own it and I've only got a 10% down payment, is my economic interest there different in terms of how I vote and how I participate? Um, so uh, I think that's, that's an area that, that could uh, do a little bit of uh, additional research. And lastly, I just want to kind of sum up, since I agree mostly with the pre pre previous speakers, um, just why this is an important issue, kind of where we are in the housing market. This is uh, demography data, just looking at the age distribution. The, the x-axis is uh, age, uh, the y-axis the count of people at those ages. We've got it divided up into boxes by generation. So you've got the, the boomers there, the Gen Xers, a bit of a dip there in around uh, 40 where I am, and then you've got the millennials and Gen Y. That yellow box is where headship rates take off. In other words, where you've got a large number of people coming that are about ready to form independent households. Now, we've been talking about this as kind of the, the triumph of hope over experience, the pent-up housing demand, and so forth. But we know they're out there. They're going to rent first. They're probably going to rent longer. Uh, they're going to rent in larger cities. Uh, but that development's got to take place to house them. And the result is that the mix of housing construction really has changed. You can see the impacts of the Great Recession, the housing bust there, the blue line, is single-family construction starts red as multifamily. Multifamily's doing okay. We're actually a little bit above where we were during the housing boom. Single-family plods along. And so the questions about where to build multifamily and the size of it are clearly wrapped up in, in zoning law regulations. But I would point out that in addition to concerns about single-family construction and its growth being a demand-side issue in terms of people renting longer and so forth, there are also supply-side constraints that are holding back the recovery in single-family construction. And one of those is access to building lots. Uh, the blue area here is housing starts. The red bars are percentages of builders who are surveyed saying there are not enough ready-to-build lots in my market. And they typically track pretty well. More housing activity, more builders reporting uh, shortages. Right now, we've got an odd situation where buildings way down but large numbers of builders are reporting these shortages of lots. So it's going to take time for that pipeline to open up, and that does involve questions of, of land use and so forth. So thank you. And turn it back over to Mark. I mean, I think the discussion really tried to illustrate a couple of the debates out there, and I did want to reflect that one of the things I really liked about the book was I think Bill does a really great job of laying out not only his position, but the other positions that are out there sometimes in direct contradiction to his positions. And uh, I'll compliment him. I think he does a very fair job. There's never a, well, these crazy people who disagree with me are simply wrong. It's a, here's my take on it. Here's citations. Here's, the, here's, here's kind of the best argument on the other side. And so the book is not simply here's all of Bill's work over his career. It's really a great reference piece for the debates that are in the literature. And, and I will add, um, since we economists are often not very good with storytelling and narratives 
This book is, is really great in that regard. You get a lot of conversations, a lot of examples about the case law, but the actual underlying facts of the cases that have driven zoning law. So um, I think it's really, uh, many economists could probably learn from how to present arguments from this book in a way uh, that I think non-economists could, could learn a lot from. So before we open up for questions, let me see if Bill wants to take a minute or two to respond to the commentators or not. Well, it's almost a love fest, so I will not actually respond. Uh, uh, let, let, I'm interested in hearing what the audience has to say. Great. Well, uh, we're going to take some questions, and let me remind you, uh, can they please be in the form of questions? And if you could also uh, identify yourself and your affiliation, the young lady here uh, in the middle with the, the hands up. Exactly. And, and please also wait for the microphones to get to you. Hi, I'm Marcia Berenger with uh, NeighborWorks America and professor, professor Official. I was wondering if um, you could paint a picture for us of how the country would be different if 1916 hadn't happened and zoning laws hadn't taken over our country. How do you think, and, and maybe this is in your book, I haven't had a chance to read it, but um, I'd be interested in knowing how the world you think might be different well, here I, in the US. I, I, yeah, I, I think the question is, how, how, what if we didn't have zoning? Uh, what if uh, the uh, Euclid v. Ambler, the case that upheld zoning, had turned the other way and zoning was just uh, outlawed? Uh, uh, I think we, uh, had that done so, the, uh, had the U U.S. Supreme Court struck down zoning as it was invited to do in 1926, uh, we would have had a constitutional amendment to allow zoning. Zoning was that popular. The state of New Jersey bravely, even after that famous U.S. Supreme Court, the state courts of New Jersey said, that's unreasonable to keep commercial development out of, uh, 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 out of apartments. Uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to ignore, they weren't ignoring, they were using the state constitution to their credit uh, to, to say that uh, uh, you can't have zoning like that that separates these otherwise seemingly benign uses. Within a year, they had a constitutional amendment to authorize zoning, reversing that decision. Uh, so it is, a, it is an immensely bottom-up story. It is not something the courts, oh, if, we had, if only they had done this, or, or if, uh, if only New York City had, 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 had not passed that law. It was a very, very popular, uh, very popular movement. So, so I simply, I, I'm, I'm sorry to disagree with the proposition of the question. It's, a, it's kind of an unfair tactic. But I, I think that is the case. Um, let me, you know, maybe ask the push. I want to parse that a little <laughs> bit because um, I'm fairly sympathetic, and I think Matt articulated this that you know, my take would be well, there are probably areas of the country that would be denser. We might have more people living in New York, San Francisco. Um, you know, would that have occurred in such a way? Or, I mean, your, your take is that, well, looking at particularly New Jersey, maybe even Massachusetts in some regard, you would have had something that would have limited these densities anyhow if it hadn't been the initial zoning. Is that yeah. a fair I mean, it's, interpretation? It's, to be, to, to take it a little, I mean, he's inviting me to take your question more seriously, and I should. There is a place, <laughs> there is a place in the, in the United States called Houston yes. that does not have zoning. And does Houston look like some hellhole? No, it's a nice place. It's an okay place. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I actually got some pushback on that, right? Eh? <laughs> uh, uh, <coughs> but 
where I think Houston is insecure, and I'm pretty sure it is, is that homeowners cannot have the confidence that it, it, in unzoned and uncovenanted areas the can, cannot have uh, uh, the security that something incompatible is not going to happen right next door or across the street. I had a thesis student uh, years ago, uh, my, called my Barack Obama student. His father was a Kenyan, his mother was from the Bronx. And he went to Houston and wrote about Houston uh, and, and, and convinced uh, me and I think quite a few other people that that uh, Houston could work better with zoning. It's not a terrible place, but it could work better with zoning. What saves Houston to some extent is most of their uh, suburban areas are subject to these uh, residential private governments, covenanted areas, uh, uh, planned communities, and so forth. Now, they have their own libertarian problems, too. Uh, if you think there's, they think there's, there's issues with zoning boards, you should see what the Homeowners Association could do to the, 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 the condominium board and so forth. You, I, I see lots of nodding heads here, uh, but, but, but it, is, it is still very controversial. The real problem with, with, uh, with covenants, private covenants, which are very effective, uh, is getting them going. It's really difficult to get them going in, a, in an already developed area. It's just the transaction costs of getting people to agree. Uh, I actually tried to do it in my neighborhood once, and really the problem was dead people. Uh, too many people who had just uh, you know, recently died and their houses were now owned by somebody who lived outside the town, you know, had no idea where they were. Uh, get, just getting that number of people together for what I thought was a fairly simple proposition to, uh, <laughs> to establish a covenant. So, so they're very difficult to do. And, and, and so I think the, the, the country would look more like Houston. It is denser. It's a vibrant, growing city. Uh, but it's also kind of, uh, for homeowners, it's a little sketchy. Yeah, it's interesting because I think you note uh, that every time there's been a citywide referendum, it's generally uh, the rich people who vote for the zoning, but poor and minority groups tend to vote against it, I guess with the suspicion that they'll be in Houston. Out yeah. in Houston. Yeah. Uh, you may say, if I don't want to give our discussants an opportunity to maybe weigh in on this topic if they wish. Or not? I would just say in the absence of zoning laws, I think you'd probably see, you know, more impact fees on, on construction, which, you know, would probably be driving the same kind of result. It's sort of a classic second-order counterfactual. You, you see, you know, impact fees used as a, as a tool of saying you can't build multifamily, you know, you can't build single-family unless it does X. So I think that would be the case. Yeah, I, I just, I, I do think, though, the important an important idea embedded in the question is that when people think about a policy change in their community, they're thinking about a situation in which the rules stay the same everywhere, but suddenly right here, you're allowing more development, which is true. I mean, that is the issue on the table if someone proposes an upzoning somewhere. Um, but it is a different question to ask, well, what would it look like if policy everywhere was less restrictive toward development. Because you obviously can't have every single place become more crowded simultaneously. There's only so many people to go around. Uh, so you would have, it, rather, than, rather than allowing for more development, meaning more crowding everywhere, it would mean more crowding some places, presumably the places where the land is most valuable, and it would mean less crowding elsewhere. Maybe I should also parse out something because I, I don't want people to walk away feeling like Bill's conclusion was, well, we're kind of stuck with what we've got and governments would have found one way to keep us in the same situation. The way I read the argument of the book uh, is that this is primarily driven, among other things, by homeowners concerned about the value of their homes. And therefore, if we want to address 
the anti-growth sediments, we have to address the obsessiveness to which people place the value of their homes as their biggest investment, which of course leads you to the arguments about uh, mortgage interest reduction and others. So the point would be, if you want the change to happen, it's got to happen at the grassroots, which means you must change the incentive of homeowners at the grassroots. Is that a fair? That, 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 that is more than fair. That's a better, better way than I could put <laughs> myself. Sure. I, Thank you very I much. I read it correctly. Let me take another question. I didn't mean for this to, right over here on the corner, gentlemen. Uh, thanks. My name is Adam Millsap with the Mercatus Center. Um, my question is for the whole panel. Enrico Moretti recently wrote a paper where he talked about how land use restrictions lead to an inefficient allocation of labor, kind of like what um, Matt was talking about. And at the end of it, he well, he goes through and does some counterfactuals and stuff and says, like, places like Flint, Michigan, like you were saying, would pretty much be a ghost town if places like San Francisco and New York, if it was easier to build homes and live there. So at the end, he briefly mentions that maybe there's a role then, because of these negative externalities, for the federal government to play in local land use regulations. Um, is this something you've thought about? And if you have thought about, and do you see that there is maybe a potential for the federal government to get involved in restricting some of this nimbyism and land use regulations at the local level? So I can summarize the question to the panel. What should be the federal response, if any? Bill? Um, my, my view is the federal government should sit on its hands. Uh, in this and many other areas, <laughs> it has made the problem worse rather than better. It has provided the NIMBYs with all sorts of ammunition uh, which when I was on the zoning board, I would hear about wetlands. Boy, I got sick of wetlands. And wetlands were, were a, uh, a federal mandate to the states that they preserve wetlands. New England had a bunch of glaciers go over it, and it's got lots of wetlands. So almost any neighborhood can find a wetland. I've seen a, a, an, a, an eminent biologist, she's now at the university that you've heard of, uh, maintained that a puddle was a wetland uh, on, on, on the affected properties. So uh, the federal government's role is, is not been helpful. If I ran the federal government, if I were the dictator, uh, yes, I could come up with some ideas uh, about this. But, but you want uh, real, real answers, not, not, not my, my, my hypothetical, so I'll let the other people who uh, deal with the federal government more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> that we do. Well, you know, I, I would say, I mean, obviously, if you're at the Cato Institute saying uh, the federal government should sit on its hands is, is a good applause line. Um, the, the reality is that there are just a lot of federal policies in place. The federal government is running lots and lots of programs. So I think to just say, oh, don't do anything, that it means it's different to say, well, nothing should have ever been done versus there's nothing that should be done now. I think it would be helpful to sort of look through the whole roster of different kind of grant programs related <laughs> particularly to transportation infrastructure and to try to say, well, look, to the extent that there's a federal interest in financing local transportation projects, it is an interest in financing national economic growth, which means it should go to places that are willing to facilitate that kind of growth rather than just, you know, the 12 people who live here, you know, would like a new streetcar to say, well, if there's going to be a national investment, that should be because you are taking on some kind of additional population, that kind of thing. Um, but where there's a more, I think, reasonable opportunity for, for real sort of policy change that would have big impacts is probably in state governments rather than in uh, at the federal government. I think it would be 
odd for the federal government to be trying to do too much with with local zoning. At the same time, I mean, I think one of the big points that this book makes is that the scale of the entity that's making the decision really matters. And so when you have uh, New England towns are really, really small versus southern counties, which tend to be pretty big, um, some states are, are gigantic. Uh, some, like, you know, Rhode Island is not a particularly large unit. Um, and I think we could see, in some instances, a constructive role for state governments to be saying, you know, we are going to play a larger role here. Um, the lack of real estate development in the city of San Francisco and in the peninsula between San Francisco and San Jose has a large impact on the fiscal base of the entire state of California. And I think it would not be crazy for state-level politicians to say, you know what, like, this impacts all of us here, and we are going to limit your ability to limit development. Yeah, I, I would agree with with both of those responses. I mean, the uh, I look at the even if uh, the policies would help, for example, land development, improve the ability to build more multifamily, more single family, just empowering the federal government to get involved in in land uh, regulations strikes me as dangerous. Yeah, and just to, to clarify, certainly my own position, and I think the Cato position is generally not to just do nothing because we don't think the status quo in most areas works very well. Uh, and since we do like to carry our pocket constitutions around, uh, I will note that the book does have a lot of discussion, as does uh, Bill's previous book on regulatory takings, uh, that sort of the takings approach is something certainly I would like to certainly see more of, uh, but I think the limitations of it are adequately and appropriately discussed in the book as well, so don't see that as a end-all, be-all. So let me see right here in front. Yeah, uh, Bob Weaver. I practice uh, government for, or law for local governments in Washington. Um, the question is, uh, does, uh, does zoning, uh, was zoning established to protect health, safety, and welfare? Uh, in homes against uh, locating uh, slaughter plants next door? And um, don't we need some control? Do we need some control over housing developments in uh, earthquake zones? I, I agree that, I mean, I, I think the good housekeeping model is actually a good model. That is, the separation of uses I'll agree with modern planners that there are many cities where mixed use makes sense, but that should be done judiciously, mostly with consent of the neighborhood and so forth, so I'd have no problem whatsoever with that. Uh, I think, on the other hand, that the, the reaching beyond your neighborhood and saying, I don't want an apartment house six blocks away because its shadow might affect a playground where my kid, not yet born, might might play, is, is, is stretching it a little bit. So... I, my, my view on, on, the, on the legal matters, and here's where I think the federal government could, in a pairing mode, help, is to limit the standing of people in court or at, uh, uh, for, to, to appeal these things. So one of the problems, I say, I say some good things about the Environmental Protection Act of 19, the National Environmental Policy Act of 1970, uh, but one of the th problematic things that it did was open up the standing box to lots of parties who have only a very minimal interest in, 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 in this and make the proceedings just grind on and on. So I think some approach to limit standing in, in court uh, uh, appeals would, would be a, a useful thing that they could do both legislative or, or, or even judicially, judicially 
the, uh, <coughs> and to some extent, the Supreme Court has tried to pare these things back. One of the phrases that you use in the book that I think uh, deserves some uh, focus on is the concept of a double veto. Uh, and in many instances, I guess you might think it is a triple or a quadruple <laughs> veto, but in some sense, what's changed since 1970 is there are so many more lever levels, levers to stop a development from happening. And of course, these seem very asymmetric. Matt talked about it at the state level, um, and you talk about the book that almost all of the uh, policies at the state level, the federal level, work towards giving somebody else a chance to say no to this development without necessarily a way at somebody at the state or federal level giving a way to say yes to the development. Um, and so could you talk just a minute about the double veto concept? Because I think this is an important part of the book. Yeah. The, the, again, in, in I hate to call them the good old days because there were not so great things in the 1950s and 60s, uh, uh, but uh, you generally went to the uh, planning board and then the city council if, if you needed a rezoning and uh, uh, they'd have open hearings and people could complain and they'd make, a, make some conditions and either grant or not grant and then you were done. Uh, there, you didn't have a whole lot of uh, other things to go through. Uh, with the 1970s, uh, uh, partly uh, part and part of the, the environmental movement, uh, the neighboring state of Vermont, the, the state I can swim to, I don't live in, um, uh, is uh, has pioneered this area of, uh, of of having the state set up regional commissions, which would review what towns would do. Now, you can come up with some stories that, that towns were doing some strange things that you would like to review. But the trouble is that even when towns want to do reasonable things, there's another level of government that can tell you to stop uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and put you back on your heels. Uh, if you're a developer, I'm witnessing this time and time again in, in Vermont, there's a developer who wants to uh, rezone wants the, the town of Randolph to rezone some of his property near an interstate highway exit. Okay, it's there. It's, it's not, not proposing to build one. Uh, rezone it from agriculture to some low, uh, some, some high density use, which would be clustered around. He'd do lots of preservation and so forth. Uh, uh, and the town, the town of Randolph is fine with this. Uh, yeah, we get some. The uh, District Environmental Commission, on the other hand, has all sorts of anxieties uh, which are uh, modifying and slowing down the project. It isn't over. It's not a, a story that's, that has a, an end. But it's certainly taking the, uh, taking the developer much longer. And he's given up many more units that he would have built uh, uh, for both housing and commercial development because of this uh, because of this second second uh, second layer, so uh, I, I think uh, it has created quite serious barriers. Vermont is not alone in this. Uh, many other states have, if not comprehensive re review, at least more selective review. Uh, a friend of mine who was developing a, a, a commercial project in the town next to me uh, uh, <coughs> uh, managed to convince the town to, uh, by by way of voting, uh, to, to rezone its property. Um, 
uh, basically by making nice to the neighbors. He, he, knows, he knows where to start. He knocked on doors, literally, himself, and said, uh, here's what I want to do. I'll modify it. What, what, do I need to, what do I need from you to get to do it? Uh, he went to the right parties, uh, uh, started it off. But he discovered to his chagrin that after he got the uh, city approval, he needed the state to approve highway cuts. Well, it turns out highway cuts are really critical for developers, but start to invoke another set of environmental reviews. Even in a live free or die state like my own, uh, we have a, a second layer which, which does slow de uh, developers down. Not as much as Vermont, but, uh, but, it, but it is, a, it is a, a serious constraint. I want to use the moderator's prerogative for a second to in inject uh, a topic that gets talked a lot about, certainly in Washington, and that's inequality. Uh, and I would certainly say the first uh, time I read Thomas Piaki's work, I was struck by how much of the growth in inequality was tied to housing wealth. Uh, it really is a very big driver. So very simple question that I'll ask all of our panelists, which is, has zoning contributed to the growth in inequality? I'll answer that, that that woman in the middle has been getting her hand up. We'll get to her later, you promise, okay? Absolutely. Okay. Um, uh, I think it's contributed to inequality, but not in the way that Piketty is, is talking about, to tell the truth. Piketty's inequality growth has happened not in the top 1%, the top one-tenth of 1%. They're not getting rich because they own... 30 houses. <laughs> it's not that, I don't think that's really the source of that inequality. I think the more serious source of inequality is the slowness of wage growth in, in, in slowness of income growth in the rest of the 99.9% of the population. And there I think the, uh, uh, the, the difficulty, as Matt pointed out, of moving to opportunity. You used to be able to go from Oklahoma to California in Grapes of Wrath style and, uh, and, and end up better off, uh, not without trials and tribulations, of course. Uh, you used to move from Mississippi to Connecticut, poorest state to richest state, get a job and, and be better off and get your kids better educated. That's much more difficult to do now. Uh, and, and that's a serious source of inequality at the lower end, the lower 99%, which is really what I'm concerned about. I don't care if people are super rich myself. Gentlemen, quick answer? I, I think it does. <laughs> I, I would actually point away from owner-occupied housing and, and more toward rental. I mean, we, we're definitely in the middle of a, a rental affordability crisis. We need more multifamily housing. We need it to be affordable. It's harder to build multifamily now if you're a builder. It takes longer, uh, it's more expensive, and that's constricting the supply. And the result is that when you look at uh, households, they're spending more on rent as a share of their income, which means it takes longer to pay down student loans. Uh, it takes longer to build up that down payment to become a homeowner and that kind of typical life cycle. So I, I think it does have an impact. I also do think we should actually take the, the land price wealth accumulation mechanism, uh, at least potentially seriously. I, I think certainly if you look at the UK data, you see a, a very clear case that simply uh, ground rents in London have exploded enormously in a way that completely locks out certain class of people. In the United States, it's a less clear in part. I, I talked about this with, with Piketty when he was uh, in the US last year, and the data quality is very bad in terms of uh, disaggregating uh, 
land prices from from structures. There's obviously conceptual difficulties in estimating that, but but you can at least make a try at it. And we sort of um, I don't know. Possibly it's it's against Cato rules to favor anything, but the the federal government tracks a lot of economic statistics. They they try to estimate the GDP of the country. They try to take count of how many eggs our chickens are laying, and they don't make a serious effort to assess uh, land wealth versus structures. Uh, someone at Bureau of Economic Analysis actually did a paper in in April on this that is pretty good, but his conclusion is that um, land prices, land value is double what is in the Fed flow of funds estimates. Um, that is a, a large divergence, and it seems like a question that people should work on a little bit more to try to even understand what's happening there. It's not directly on the nose of improving land use policy, but it's good to actually know what's happening. But at Cato, we like to remind people that there's just a tremendous amount of uh, private data collection. And since Lincoln Land Institute is the publisher of the book, I will note they actually do great series of data by metro area at the Lincoln Land Institute on their website and Excel spreadsheets uh, by city on differences in how much uh, land costs versus construction costs. Uh, I know Bob is probably more familiar with some of this stuff than I, but there's a tremendous amount of actual, uh, you know, means company does this, tremendous amount of private data collection. Uh, that's out there on how much of its land versus structure. Uh, I also note, uh, if you've never read the book uh, Fortune Tellers that came out about a year or two ago, a whole lot of the actual economic data collection at the federal level started by private sector firms that later <laughs> took over that. Um, but that's a whole other story. We'll tell some other day. We've got time for one more question, so we'll make it a quick one from the woman in the front who's been holding up her hand for a while. Uh, and then we'll go to lunch. Thank you. This is my lucky day. Thanks, Mr. Fisher. Uh, I think currently, maybe for a long time already, the system works this way. So the law and all the policies is, or let's say now in this case is, uh, let's say the joining or even the eminent domain, they are abused. And when they say they want to have economic development or housing, affordable housing, they are all misused and misleading. And instead, they are eviction people with unjust foreclosure. I think you can see it's not just from 2008, but way back before and before. So I just wonder, and I think Mr. Gracious is saying that Piketty data is bad. That is really bad because there is no accountability or any sort of accounting or bookkeeping in almost every segment of our life. So I just wonder, is there any study really tell you the government expenditure to support the development and with the, some kind of relation or activities or unfortunate home ownership or their foreclosure or even eviction from the renter? Is there any that type of so maybe uh, I would interpret analysis the so we can say it, we have to do it right, not just as divert the resources to the developer while increase the taxpayer's burden and the public debt. So I'm going to interpret the question partly to be about what about the renters? Yeah, the, the, I wrote a book called The Home Voter Hypothesis, and I was upbraided a little bit by what, what about those renters? And uh, I, I'm, uh, I am four square in, far, in, in, in favor of renting as well as homeowning. Uh, you can't get to the third ladder by cutting off the, the bottom two ladders, and that's why I and many other people don't think uh, rent control is a, a very good policy. 
because it discourages. Uh, I, I think, in fact, when we start talking about renters, one of the reasons we have as much home ownership as we have in many other countries, Spain is very high home ownership, Portugal, is because developers fear that if they put up a rental housing, they will get the rent control stuck on them, and so they build housing and sell them as condominiums, which, uh, which, which creates its own problem. But, but I think the, the rental market does need more attention. I think the rental market, this is an area where the state courts, I think, have fallen down and not protected the, uh, the owners and the tenants. There's an imbalance towards tenant protection, which works itself back so that the, the uh, developers themselves say, well, I, don't, I, I, don't wanna, I wanna avoid that law, and I'm gonna put condominiums, which cuts off that bottom long, rung for, for low-income people to get into the housing market. So I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. Well, I want to thank uh, all of our panelists, and I, and I really do want to uh, encourage you to read the book. We have copies outside, which I know Bill will be delighted to sign. Uh, and I uh, welcome everybody up to the second floor for lunch. Uh, the restrooms are to your left as you leave on the second floor. Thanks. <laughs>